I'll tell you one story. Canfor Big Works were coming to the block and Hobdave was running around moving trucks and uh, to make everything look nice and safe and organized and all this stuff. And during his frantic effort to get ready for this big inspection, he ran over his own backpack, which had his laptop in it. Everything for payroll and the company stuff was all on this laptop. And he ran it over the truck and then he ran, he freaked out, so he ran over to the bag to open it. And he had also crushed his bear mace in the bag in the process. So then the bear mace just exploded into his face. And so he gets bear maced quite badly and then he staggers over to this truck and he's just like searching through the truck to find a four liter jug of water or whatever and he grabs his jug and then he goes to pour it into his eyes and he pours it into his eyes except that uh, at one point people would soak towels in uh, white vinegar because that would keep the bugs away so he just pours white vinegar into his bare maced eyes and then he just you know ah, screams some more drops that <laughs> Then he finally oh finds some God. actual water and like washes his eyes out as best as he can. And within 15 or 20 minutes, like you got bear mace, you're just tearing everywhere. Your face is all red. And then someone just said they watched you like walk over like, hi, I'm Mark Abde. Nice to meet you. Like straightest, straightest can be like just held his composure or whatever. And like it's a, the epitome of tree planting right there. And the guy I work for just that like shit hits the fan. The craziest things can happen. And you just pull it together and hold your composure. You make it work. And make it happen. Welcome to The Detour with Sarah Taff. Have you ever expected your life to go down a certain path and then those very plans changed entirely? Join me for our first season of this podcast, a deep look into the biggest detour my life has taken to date, tree planting in Northern British Columbia. This adventure unveiled a lot for me, and I think that you're going to find it pretty interesting too. Ah! Okay, this is so fun. To kick things off, I want to introduce you to my first guest, Phil Abbott. A true man of the woods, Phil has worked in the reforestation industry for 18 years. He's the lead supervisor at a large reforestation company in BC and oversees a staff of around 120. He's a proud seasonal worker. He's a family man. He owns a hobby farm on Vancouver Island. His favorite tree is an arbutus tree, and he is a force to be reckoned with. Please pardon the background sound for the first 10 minutes. Phil and I were headed to the river to fill up the water tanker. I promise that after that 10 minutes, the sound will be smooth and clear as we sat back and just enjoyed a lovely conversation. At the time that we recorded this podcast, we were well into the tree planting season about mid-June in 2020. Uh, you'll hear Phil and I talk about what planting actually is, how it's developed over the last two decades, and the culture behind this infamous community out in the middle of the sticks. Phil does use some colorful language and metaphors, so if there's any kids listening, you have been warned. Alrighty, without further ado, here it is, episode one with Phil Abbott. How did you hear about tree planting? I had a friend from high school. He was a year younger than me, and he had tree planting the first summer he got out of high school. And while he was tree planting, I was working three jobs. And I worked like 29 days in a row, one day off, 27 days in a row, one day off. Mm-hmm. So just a ton of work. And then he came back, and we went camping together, and he told me all about it. And I was like, oh, this sounds pretty great. I think I'd like to do it. Yeah. And then it turns out a guy that was a year older than us in high school that I played rugby with and was kind of friends with, yeah. he was getting a crew that year. So then me and my friend who had worked for Apex, and then now this guy who was about to get a crew, uh, we went and worked for him. Yeah. 
and then the rest is history, really. What would you say initially motivated you to come out tree planting? The idea of it, the potential to make more money, and also, like, I had just worked this summer where I literally just worked non-stop for three months in a row. Yeah. Really hard. Like, two jobs a day, um, most days, and then, like, with three days off in an entire summer. And, you know, I made some money. I paid off a loan, but yeah. other than that, I was like, okay, well, this kind of sucked. I went to the lake twice. Yeah. And he told me about tree planting. You work really, really hard, but make more money, potential to make more money, and it's more adventurous. So that initially drew you out, and then you had your first season. Yeah. And you've come back for 18 seasons. I would imagine the motivations have changed over the course of that time of what keeps you coming back each year. Yeah, I enjoy the challenge of the job more than anything. Like, whether it was planting, forming, like, at the end of planting I was like oh I really want to get promoted or I don't know if I want to keep planting it's just physically grueling and I don't find it that challenging anymore like it's still challenging obviously to go hard every single day but I was like I want more I want something different yeah excuse me nice. pick up coming on 176 and a half I'm going down um so yeah I was like I don't know if I'll go back planting for too much more like so I said I just really wanted to get promoted as well yeah <laughs> but I would essentially take all of my money and go traveling and I absolutely love that lifestyle I wanted to travel the world and see lots of things which I did for the first uh, five years of tree planting and that was always motivation I was like before I put a single tree in the ground one season for the first like 12 years of my career or something I'd always be like I'm coming back next year I was never hesitant to be like I'm going back yeah um, there was never any if iffiness. Near the end of my formatting, which was my ninth or 10th year or something like that, I was going to school and I was like, okay, maybe I'm gonna work my way through school and then get a new job. And then I got promoted to supervisor, which I never really thought as an option at the time. Yeah. And then I went to school one year as a supervisor and realized like, I don't actually like school that much mm. or the jobs that it would actually give me aren't all that attractive to me. Right. And I can make really good money tree planning and I have all this free time still to pursue other things in my life. Yeah. Whereas uh, school, I think if I really wanted to get a cool job, I'm like, I'm looking at a master's degree and that's just endless school. I'm not very good at sitting at a desk all day. Yeah. Um, I'm just not that kind of person, so. Yeah. Um, but I ultimately like really like this job and the opportunity it provides like financially and just free time wise. Yeah. So. so that's a big part of the reason that I wanted to like put this podcast together is to demonstrate that seasonal work is a viable choice for a career and I think that you're a prime example of someone who's made it work very well for themselves yeah I'm obviously I'm married I have two kids I own my own house I have a farm like all the things I ever wanted to pursue in life I've been able to do while having this job and yeah I'd like to consider you could talk to my wife about this as well but we I think we have a healthy relationship I think I have a good relationship with my children and obviously I can't experience it so I speculate on it but I do think about what if I did go to work nine to five I would spend little to no time with my children in the morning yeah I would get home from work I would be just as tired as any other Joe Schmo that goes to work nine to five mm -hmm. uh, and there's still other things in life that are gonna require your time so it's just because you get home at five doesn't mean you spend from five until bedtime with your children so yeah um, and then the weekends are crammed again doing chores and stuff like that so I don't think I'm missing out or have less time if anything I'd like to consider that I have more time more quality time with my family it's just in a different time allotment yeah um, totally so I, you're afforded a lot by the seasonal work hugely yeah. yeah would you say there are some negatives 
associated um, to it? For sure. Like, I, I, my wife does get stressed out. You know, she's got a huge burden on her. Like, there's the whole house, there's two kids, there's farm animals. Um, sometimes the internet doesn't work, and I can't talk to my children, and it is upsetting, and I don't enjoy it, and I don't want them to have a lack of father figure in their life, and I, I find that kind of painful sometimes. Yeah. Pick up down 174. Um, so things like that are hard. Uh, mm-hmm. This job is exhausting. I find I am very burnt out when I get home sometimes. It takes me a bit to recover. Um, you know, I want to curl yeah. one day, you know? An old <laughs> man who's do some curling, but I never have time. I'm always working when yeah. the curling season's on. For um, sure. Yeah, but I think every avenue of life is not going to provide you with absolutely everything. I think it's just a matter of appreciating what you have and making it work and not any things that you just clearly can't have. Uh, I think that just goes for any job or anyone in life. Yeah. If you just covet the things you can't possibly have and always look at the grass greener on the other side, then yeah, you're mm-hmm. going to see your job is pretty shitty no matter what it is. Yeah. So, obviously the job has high times and low times. Yeah. Can you walk through in a year kind of like what is the cycle of work look like for you? Yeah, so I'd say the end of February or the start of March, if I know how to use my months properly, um, is when our warehouse season would kick off, and that is when all the um, equipment is worked on, so we prep trucks and trailers and camp equipment, and we start getting ready for the season, Um, and that's like quads, everything else that we pack up into trailers, drive north with, and that we use as equipment, essentially. So I do that from the end of February, early March, until April. At that time of year, I work four days a week, and I have three-day weekends every weekend. I have to take the ferry back and forth from home. I live in Vancouver with my fellow supervisor, Jason Yanni, and then every Thursday night, I catch the ferry home, and I have three days off every weekend, and then I catch the ferry back. um, So that's how I kind of live my life in the spring. And then that kicks into the summer season, um, which is kind of like mid-April, I'd say, until mid-August for me. And that's when actual tree planting happens. Uh, during the summer, it's like, it's full on, obviously. Like, I can work anywhere from 18 hours a day, you know, maybe 12 hour days kind of thing. Uh, I, and then I get a break every two weeks or so. And I'll go home for two or three days with a travel day on either side. Pick up down once every week. Um, and then that goes until August, the season ends, we don't plant any more trees, we go back to Vancouver, put all our equipment away, and uh, prepare all our trucks and quads and all that kind of stuff. And that goes till about the end of August, maybe the start of September. We usually take September off, and then we go up north in October, going viewing, which is essentially like viewing at future contracts, bidding on them if they're a bid contract, or just viewing them if they are a direct award contract. Right. And we spend most of October, sometimes into November, doing that. Uh, figuring out what our workload will be for the following year. Right. And then, um, and then you start to gauge crew sizes, how many people crew you sizes, need. how many employees we'll need, the pricing on the blocks, kind of we can estimate our budgets and all that kind of stuff once that's done. I'm not personally a part of that. That's more the owner of the company's end of things. Yeah. I estimate um, how much we'll have to pay planters, and everything is based off of that. And then uh, a few other uh, other important notes, like where we would camp, and if we need helicopters, and all that kind of stuff. So for the most part, that's October, and a little bit into November sometimes. And then uh, sometimes we'll do some warehouse work, and sometimes we won't. The owner of the company is pretty excellent for being flexible in that. If you want work and there's work to do, he will let you do it. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you're just like, I don't really want to work anymore, 
Um, like obviously I've had a couple of kids over the last few years, so my schedule has been quite flexible where if I have to check out early or I need to go on an Alaskan cruise with the family, <laughs> then he's like, all right, well, you gotta live your life. Yeah. I would consider that I have eight to nine months of work every year and three to four months off, and there's a lot of flex in there. Yeah. Um, pretty good. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. How would you describe tree planting to a person that's, you know, maybe only ever heard of it of oh so-and-so's cousin's brother went tree planting <laughs> to the average Canadian how would you describe the job a grueling manual labor adventure um, <laughs> it is very hard to describe because it's it's more than just the actions of the job the things that bring people back and that people enjoy are the camaraderie the adventure the being in the nature being able to challenge yourself all those aspects but that is nowhere in when i describe what the actual motions of the job are that's nothing where in there no you could describe it as like the bonds that probably are formed between peoples in the military and stuff like that like that is the totally. kind of it's really intense work in a really close environment with a set group of people and yeah. that forms some unique bonds that you won't get to experience much else in life but other than that, you take a tree and then you open a hole with a shovel and you insert the tree and then you close the hole. You take three steps and then you do that again a couple thousand times a day. <laughs> and you could describe it as that or there's so many other aspects. That's very true. Yeah. Um, do you want to fill that up and we'll chat? Yeah, we'll get the yeah. pump going. Sweet. Okay, so also from more of that industry basics perspective. How many trees are we talking about here? Like how many trees does Apex plant in a year? It has varied over my last 10 years as supervision when I actually knew what was going on. Yeah. I would say it's gone up to 22 million and been as low as 16 million. Okay. This year we're doing slightly over 20 million trees. Okay. And do you know how many trees provincially would be planted? This year was supposed to be the biggest year in tree planting history for BC. Due to COVID, it will be slightly less just because of the delay in the season and then the lack of manpower that we were able to drum up last minute. Is it not adequate to plant all the trees? And don't quote me on this, but I think it's 308 million trees were hoped to be planted this year, which would have been the biggest wow. year ever. I think 250, 200 million is probably more around like the norm. That's pretty remarkable though for Apex, like 10%. Yeah, we are- Give or take one of the companies up north and up north is where they put in a copious amount of trees like there's a lot of logging going on up here but it's also like higher densities and just a ton of logging like there's at least 10 other companies that are easily our size and or bigger wow yeah so again back to the average canadian like talking about a block you show up and it's this prepared piece of land that you're ready to go plant uh obviously we as planters don't see any of that previous work that happens can mm -hmm. you talk through like what is the chain of events for us to be able to plant a tree and then to follow that what happens after we have planted the tree for sure also if you want to turn ac or open windows whatever <laughs> planting so many trees right we're just feeding the trees co2 by running the truck <laughs> um so i'll speak to british columbia because that's what i know mm -hmm. um all most land that's not privately owned is then considered crown land owned by the government. They lease land to the logging companies. These logging companies will take out like 99 year leases. Yeah. Or very long term leases. 
There is also some private land, like private woodlots that are logged as well. But the majority of the work we do, the majority of trees that plant here in BC are on crown land, leased by a logging company. Okay. Part of the lease is that they pay a tax on, uh, called stumpage fees. So every tree they cut down, they pay a tax to the government. That's how the government benefits from it. And then part of that deal is also in the rules, they're obligated to replant it. Uh, they're obligated to replant it, survey it, and maintain it until uh, those trees reach what is called free to grow, which is essentially a certain density of trees at a certain height, where you're then confident that they won't die from drought or something like that. And then the forest will essentially just replace itself. And at then, that point, you're allowed to then hand over the uh, ownership or like care of that piece of land back to the government. Okay, um, to then be able to be leased again. Yeah, at least Potentially again. by that company or... Yeah, by someone one. else in the future. And essentially, like, I think the company still kind of has the rights to it if they wanted to build a road through it to get another piece of land nearby. It's still... These vast swaths are still under their lease. It's just that if something bad happens to that piece of land, like a forest fire or some insect invasion or something, uh, the company that originally logged it and replanted it is not responsible for those costs. Oh, okay. So like Natural causes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So as far as the logging goes, you have this lease on this land. Uh, people will go out and survey parts of the land. So there's the guy who will literally just walk off into the forest. He will survey the trees, the size of the trees. I think they can do this through a uh, helicopter, like um, uh, infrared surveys, like uh, LIDAR and um, uh, there's another form of mapping. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. Uh, and they can kind of tell what wood is there and if it's economically viable to go in and cut this wood down. So there's a lot of modern technology that goes into choosing to log areas and stuff. You're like, okay, there's a certain density of this type of tree. We can get this much money for it. It'll cost us this much money to put a road in and a bridge in and pay all these people. So I think it's a fairly well-tuned venture. They're not just going in blind and hoping that they get some nice wood and it's going to work out well for them. Yeah. Uh, so they go in and survey the land, figure out if they want to cut it. There's obviously all sorts of rules and regulations on how you can build roads, how you have to maintain creeks, what kind of trees you have to leave around, how big blocks can be. Uh, that I don't know great details in, but I know it's a decent process and there's obviously all sorts of government regulations around it. Uh, they would then build a road in, uh, like cut a road in, and then there's obviously spring or summer roads, depending on what time of year you log the block. And what's the difference between a spring and a summer road? Uh, often it's the ground in which you uh, are logging. So oh, okay. spruce ground tends to be wetter. It has like mass wet organic soils. So if you drove a tractor into it, your machine could then sink in a swamp. When the ground is frozen and or there's a thick layer of snow, you can then drive on top of the snow. Uh, you can also just plow a really shitty bulldozer road. So it's just clear of trees and other obstacles. And then you just drive your machine in after uh, the winter is setting. Oh, okay. Um, you tend to get like higher stumps because mm. they can only cut down to the snow level and you get massive more, like higher masses of slash because spruce trees leave more slash. And also they can't take it off the block when it's a winter block, which is why. under snow. Yeah, exactly. Which is or why now. sitting on top of snow and then it just settles out in the winter, like yeah. in the, as the snow melts. Which is why the blocks now are a little more difficult. Yeah, and you can also imagine that a machine that drives around a summer block, which doesn't have much vegetation in the first place, and it can drive pretty much wherever it wants, it's gonna run over a lot of that stuff and crush it, whereas you run over snow, everything is, all these plants are underneath it, and they just pop right back up. Yeah. Which is why you go into a spruce block or a winter log block, they're gonna be greener, slashier, 
and have like black organic soils and shitty roads and often are walk-ins. So it's like a whirlwind of a winter log block is all the things you don't want. Yeah. Um, and then a summer log block is tends to be rockier ground, drier ground. So sandy, rocky ground where po- predominantly pine trees grew more. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easier to bulldoze a road in and leave a road that won't get washed away or won't will actually settle properly and then you can tend to be able to drive those and they'll they'll log them in the summertime as well the machines can drive around on the block because it's hard dry ground and stuff like that right so they've gone in and they've logged it and then we've been by we i mean the reforestation is provided with the specs of you're planting this species of tree yeah this density per hectare you go out and you do it yeah and then what happens after we've gone in and planted to the specs, um, we uh, we leave. Um, <laughs> See you later. <laughs> we leave. I have no idea what happens after that. No. Um, <laughs> logging companies are required to go in and survey it afterwards. After a certain number of years, there's like a, a regen delay survey that they do. Yeah. I believe they just go in and see what other kind of species are coming up. And then they can tell if their trees are going to be in intense competition with, say, like something like aspen mm. or some other plant that will outgrow the seedlings and then block them out from the light, which would then slow down their growth process dramatically. And again, they're not doing it because they really love trees. They're doing it because they want those trees to get tall enough as quickly as possible so they no, no longer are liable on that land. Right. So they will do things like brushing or herbiciding, uh, which will kill off things like aspen or like first-generation regrowth, like aspen, alder, your quicker-growing first-generation kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll either brush it after a certain number of years or they'll spray it. Oh, okay. um, yeah, depending on what you're allowed in certain areas. And then obviously the trees grow, they're logged, yeah. brought to a mill. Yeah. And then that ultimately becomes paper products, pulp, wood products. Yeah. Depends again, like, you know, spruce is like good building lumber. Pine can be good building lumber. There's been a lot of pine kill, which is probably predominantly not that great of wood anymore because it's been standing dead out there for 10 or 15 years. It's probably mostly pulp wood. Yeah. Yeah. And it depends who's logging it and what kind of mill they're sending things to. Okay. As well. So. And species wise, you're referring to a lot of softwood lumber. Yes. There's no hardwood. Uh, not in BC. No. Yeah, there's no, like, large-scale logging operations for hardwoods. Because there's a very small amount of hardwoods in BC, and they're mostly down on the coast, and they're all rare and endangered trees. Yeah. So, yeah. And from what I understand, you want to plant trees that grew there previously because you know they'll be successful. Yeah, the foresters that decide what we plant go out, and they eco-type. Again, I don't know a ton of this, but I hear them talking, and I'm (laughs) nodding my head like I know. Yeah. Um, And they'll be like, okay, down there, that's a swampy area. Clearly, spruce trees grew there. I can tell by the herbaceous plants that are growing in this area that a spruce tree would like to live here, and they tell you this area is like 20% spruce and 80% pine or something like that, and and they decide how you're going to replant a block. Okay. So, again, you've been a supervisor for ten, 8 to 10 years? Somewhere around there. Yeah. Has it been pretty consistent in that? Like, that you kind of get this, it's the same, it's the same now than it was 10 years ago? Give or take. The specs on how you're allowed to plant a tree, they're always, like, studying how successful the regrowth of trees are. They always want it to be faster, so they're always, like, researching, um what is the best bang for their buck. They used to grow a lot bigger trees. You would get a tree from the nursery that was like two years old and they're huge. Yeah. Um, But then I think they started to realize they weren't actually getting quicker growing trees. Mm -hmm. They're spending a lot more money on these expensive trees, but it wasn't actually like giving them results they want. So I think they've gone to more spending money on cheaper trees and hoping they grow fast enough. Um, Also, when I started planting, 
like just as a planter, uh, I planted a ton of spruce ground, but then the pine beetle epidemic that kind of like killed all the trees in BC uh, was killing all of the pine trees, obviously, and then they started to log predominantly pine as well. Mm. So for most of my supervisorial career, I was planting pine ground. So oh. like there'd be way more pine ground and way less spruce ground. And now apparently there's a spruce beetle epidemic happening in certain areas. And also just the fact that they've logged out any available pine trees that, that was easily accessible. Anything now is going to get more and more expensive to access. So now you're starting to see the switch back to logging more spruce ground oh, or even just a more traditional mix of pine yeah. and spruce ground. Yeah. Um, and what other elements would you say have changed? in your time in this industry? Um, the, the specs, to some degree, which is the requirements of how we plant trees, like minorly, they used to make a screef, what was called dinner plate screefs, like you'd have mm. to tear apart the forest floor for a, <laughs> a dinner plate size thing, because they thought the competition from any surrounding plants was yep. too much for the tree. Now they've also realized that when you kill all the plants around it, you just expose bare soil and that bare soil dries out quite a bit. And as climate change happens and temperatures mm. get hotter, then maybe you actually want that natural layer of moss and other vegetation there to hold the moisture in the ground. So little things like that have changed. I think mm -hmm. one of the ways they got around not paying us any more money to do the job was mm -hmm. to actually lower the specs so we could go faster. So I think that was a that was a big trend that happened over probably like 10 years essentially But yeah. like we would want more money because we needed to keep people's wages going up with inflation yada yada uh, And they were like, well, we don't have any more money to pay you so they made it easier for us to go faster Okay, yeah, so in terms of faster what would be a Pretty successful planting day in your first few seasons and what would be a pretty successful day today? terms in terms of number of trees planted um Hitting 2,000 trees when I started was quite a big deal. Like between two and 3,000 trees, you would max out. Yeah. And as I started getting into forming, so like my fifth year, we started to get in more pine ground again. And it was like all of a sudden people get hit 3,000 all the time, and then 4,000, and then 5,000, and then all of a sudden 5,000 became the thing. Like I'd never heard of anyone planting 4,000 um, when the first people in our company did it. Mm -hmm. And then then it just like more people started doing it. And then it was 5,000 and more people started doing it. And there's kind of a, all, there's a natural setting of the bar. Like people knew it could be done. So people started to do it. Yeah. You know, the, the second some guy breaks the hundred meter record, someone else is going to break that. And then all of a sudden high school kids can hit the old record from 1950. It's just kind of like that, that progression of uh, demystifying it or something. But now we are getting into more spruce ground and less of this fast ground. There's obviously a ton of forest fire stuff out there where it's still incredibly fast. Mm -hmm. But now people, I think, will slowly change their perspective. Like working really hard on a slow block to put in 1,500 trees is an accomplishment unto itself. And the price is going to be higher and you should be compensated somewhat equivalently as mm -hmm. to putting 5,000 trees on a, an incredibly fast block. Just a sand flat, yeah, easy exactly. breezy. Yeah, so there was kind of a... I don't think people really got all that much, like the specs did get easier, um, which made people go faster. And then the land just got really easy for a long time. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how like the somewhat changed specs with now more and more spruce ground, like how that works out for people. Mm -hmm. But I see numbers now on spruce ground that remind me of when I was a planter and stuff. People hit between a thousand and 2000 and that's kind of where they max out. The really good people go over 2000, but yeah. it's not like they're putting 4K in on these really hard slashy blocks. Right, yeah. For a person that doesn't know anything about tree planting, like what would be the elements that make a block more or less difficult? So you've talked about, you know, pine is usually harder, sandier ground, spruce mm -hmm. is wetter. 
uh, what else plays into the difficulty associated with those blocks? Yeah, you can think of the fastest block ever would be made of sand, incredibly flat, with no slash on it. Um, which slash is, being fallen trees. Slash being fallen trees or branches that fall off of trees as they log it. And often they'll take a machine and pile that. So everything's been piled, taken off the block. So essentially it's just a layer of moss on top of sand. That's your fastest block ever. Yeah. Uh, if you make a hill, it's slower. If you make the terrain varied in any way, even if it's small rolling terrain, it becomes more difficult. And then the more slash on the ground will slow you down. You start putting rocks in the ground, it will slow you down. <laughs> you um, drop all these things off at the block. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know why they keep putting them out there. It's a mean trick. Yeah. And then obviously if you get into more spruce ground or other varied terrain, you start getting more plants, uh, areas where like alder will grow back really quick, uh, mm -hmm. aspen whips. Like the plants and the vegetation are movement restricting, but also like visually restricting. If you can't see ahead of you, you can't anticipate how you're going to move. Yeah. And if you can't anticipate how you're going to move, you're going to move slower. True. So I guess with that overall production from the company, you said it's ranged between like 16 to 22 million. And a big part of that is like, is it more spruce land? Is it more pine? Is it yeah. burnt forest? Obviously like that's kind of a category we haven't really talked about, but yeah. having so many forest fires in BC over mm -hmm. the last five to 10 years has produced a lot of land that needs to be replanted. Yeah. And burnt land is- Incredibly fast. Very fast. Yeah. Uh, it is the, I guess really that is the epitome of the fastest block ever. They burned everything out of your way and you have to do no work, but except for open a hole and, and <laughs> take two steps and go. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is painfully fast sometimes and there is a lot of that out there now and again yeah you could have 16 million trees of spruce ground and that is a full summer the longest summer you could ever wish for and you could have 22 million trees of burnt ground and actually finish two weeks earlier than 16 million trees so there is that aspect of it yeah um, mostly I think our company has varied in size as well like we went up to mm. 300 employees we went down to around 200 employees we're kind of back up to around 300 employees yeah um, these last couple of years and stuff so yeah. That. And that's somewhat dependent on the contracts that you have. Yeah. What it looks like for difficulty and then yeah. trying to get the right people power. We, we estimate production of vets and then rookies on okay. every single block. So we would just say we have 150 rookies, we have 150 vets. These vets will put in this amount, the rookies will put in this amount, and then you just do the, do the math on it. And then yeah. you can calculate how many days okay. um, it will take you to finish a contract or set number of trees. Yeah. Um, and that's how you project out your season. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we shoot, uh, like some companies will and used to more in the past, like they would take 20 million trees in the spring because they could do it, but then they would fire half their company and then only mm -hmm. half them would get work in the summer. Yeah. And then people would bounce around all sorts of companies and you, you would have tree planners just backpacking and hitchhiking all over Northern BC, hoping to find contracts to fill their summer. Mm -hmm. Um, one of the, our company's different approaches was like, we want to start in may we want to end at the end of july we want three solid months of work so that it's a consistent thing that you know every year you come back to us you will have that summer's like body of work and you will know approximately what you can pull out of it like wage wise yeah um so it gives people that consistency and routine and stuff as opposed to one year being 50 million trees and the next year being 10 million trees right uh, that might be better for the company to make more money off of 50 million trees when it's available and then just say screw everyone uh, and then have 10 million trees but it's not nice for your employees no. Because if they have to go somewhere else, they're just bouncing around everywhere. Yeah. And, and then in the long-term play, like that might help you that year, but yeah. five, ten years out from then it could be. Yeah, the next year you have 50 million trees, but you don't have the base of experienced workers to do it. So it's way better yeah. to have a consistent kind of body of work that you, you vary from a little bit up or a little bit down 
but the owner of the company, even just the last couple of days, I've taken a survey of the managers who's going to return next year or what they think their plans are. Mm-hmm. And my boss would take that into consideration in October before he bids on contracts. He's not going to take a whole ton of work if he thinks all of his experienced managers are about to leave because that's just setting us up for failure. Yeah. We just have a ton of rookies. We'd have a ton of inexperienced managers. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though it looks like you're going to make more money on paper, you're going to have like... 20 year old kids crashing trucks you're gonna have a bunch of experienced foreman failing blocks and it can turn into a disaster very quickly even though on paper it looked like you're about to make a bunch of money so for sure yeah yeah, yeah. and thinking 10 15 years down the road mm-hmm. what do you think tree planting will look like then it's funny because like they have drones now that drop seed pods and stuff and people claim they can digitize the whole thing and they can put the perfect tree in the exact location um all this stuff you would have to build you wouldn't have to build roads so nice. People wouldn't have to have access to things. Mm-hmm. I still think for a very long time, there will be humans marching into the woods with bags strapped to them and they will be planting trees because it is just, I just, there's no technology that will be uh, available anytime soon as far as I know where like robots are going to march off into the woods. Yeah. My old foreman would pray and hope every single day that Terminators would walk from the woods, sent back from the future, to replant <laughs> the woods for us. They would just take the bags right off us and just go to work. Arnie and his buddies. Never happened. Maybe it will happen someday, but I don't yeah. see that happening anytime, anytime soon. soon. No. Yeah. Um, aside from that, do you see any other... I mean, it sounds like seedlings are a bit of an innovation or a continuous... Yeah. I don't know if it's like GMO-related or herbicide or what, but they're trying to just get getting them to grow faster yeah yeah there's there's only I you know they've got to be limited in some ways and obviously a lot of it's just picking the right stock for the right area when tree planting originally started they would have bare root trees so a tree that literally just had naked roots dangling from the bottom wow. of it. and, no and they plug. would plant with yeah no plug which is like the roots growing down into a like a tube of dirt yeah now we plant these tubes of dirt into the ground it makes a lot of sense they're packed with nutrients and fertilizers and herbicides and all that stuff to help protect the tree and let it survive over the first year back in the day it was these bare roots which were large and unwieldy they planted them with maddox like pickaxes they just Whoa. kind of folded the ground back stuffed them in there kicked <laughs> them in one on their way i guess it worked but obviously they figured out that using a small spade shovel and a dirt plug is much more successful yeah uh, it's probably also cheaper. You can carry more. You can transport them better. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can store them better. Um, yeah. All sorts of aspects like that. I don't know when the difference between spring and summer trees, which is like spring trees come frozen from the freezer, like they just went through the winter. Summer trees are live growing trees that are transferred to a box, brought mm-hmm. to us, and we plant them immediately. I don't know when that innovation started. Yeah. Um, but that's like a slight difference that's developed over the years. Okay. And in terms of people, are you finding that the job, like it's difficult to get people to come more difficult now than it would have been 10 years ago? Or has it been pretty similar? I think it's pretty similar. It goes through ebbs and flows. The economy is really good and there's a ton of student jobs out there. And like a lot of our our workforce comes from university kids, like looking for good keen summer jobs. Like, um, and they want to pay for university with it. It's the perfect time mm-hmm. area, but especially our company in particular targets those people. Um, and yeah, when the economy is really good, there's lots of jobs out there and some com- kid can go get a co-op and uh, then it gets harder to find them. Yeah. But if the oil co- like fields are booming, like there's tons of money to be made there. It is still rare to get people from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba to come out tree planting. There's mm. tree planting companies in Alberta. Maybe that's just where they all go. Yeah. But we get people from all over Canada and the flatlands are the least represented in tree planting. Interesting. Yeah. 
Um, except for maybe Newfoundland or something. So <laughs> when jobs are scarce, then it's easier to find people for sure. Yeah. And when the economy is booming, it's harder to find people. So I don't know if there's really any like mm. reason other than that, that it's hard. Like there's always the, the mysticism around tree planting. It's like your hippie rite of passage as a good Canadian kid to go to the woods for a summer. Yeah. Um, and I think it is an awesome experience for everyone to have, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, there's, there's always struggles in hiring and some days years you do better some days you do worse kind of thing yeah. but I wouldn't say there's any consistent trend okay. over like the last 20 years yeah and you touched on it a bit earlier kind of the camaraderie of tree planting mm-hmm. how would you describe the culture of it like it's from my perspective it's it's like high school I don't know it's like a real mixed bag of people that show up yeah and yet there's this culture that seems like it's it hasn't changed yeah over time it's true and the more I think about the comparison to high school where it is a very different group of people that are just in a building all together all the time so you happen to know each other there is a beautiful opportunity to meet people from all over Canada and all different backgrounds of life mm-hmm. you're not gonna like all of them but you're probably the better for experiencing them to some degree if yeah. you grew up in one small town your whole entire life and everyone was kind of the same um, you're missing out on a lot of stuff and I think this is because we have so many younger people that come out with not that much life experience or even job experience and stuff like that, mm-hmm. then it is a really like great opportunity for that avenue of like um, being forced to be next to someone you would probably never speak to in a normal life, and then they become your best friend at tree planting. Yeah, um, so. totally. And I guess there's like the adversity of the job. It's grueling work, and yeah. you're sharing that with these other people, and there's some bond yeah. associated to finishing the season together or hugely yeah and I think also that people become very human out here like you're gonna have a bad day you're gonna have a bad time out here and you can't hide that from everyone you're Mm -hmm. sitting like a foot away from or touching everyone in the truck they're gonna know if you're crying in the back seat and had the roughest day ever like they're gonna know if your grandma died and they're gonna give you a hug and stuff and Mm -hmm. you feel a certain level of comfort with people here very quickly like um, I equate it to either like yeah like the army or if you're traveling if anyone has ever done any world traveling you also meet strangers in a hostel and because you're both in this foreign environment Mm -hmm. you're just very very open whereas I think in your own home life you get fairly closed off to strangers you don't just go up to people in the grocery store and be like hey man <laughs> and share your life story with them but you will know someone at tree planting for a week and you will bond quickly and mm-hmm. just start to spill your guts to them I think so yeah yeah I think there's that aspect where it really breaks people down and, and you're forced to to share all of you with people which yeah. is a rare thing yeah totally so. And what would you say are some of the attributes of the people that come back regularly? Um, or so perhaps the people that, that you've seen flourish, maybe they don't come back regularly, but they're very successful. Like what makes a good person, a good tree planter? I think my parents, like were, they were never academic. They were never, they're not high achieving humans. They have very average Joe jobs, but they always worked really hard and somehow they instilled that in me. Mm-hmm. How you instill that in someone, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. You can see a certain trend with uh, kids that are from engineering programs in university. They tend to do well here. Why? Because like, if you're going to engineering, it's a very hard thing. You're really pushing yourself for a challenge. Mm-hmm. And it, it's some kind of drive and where kids learn that is through other experiences of life. And some people will show up with that, but other people will then be next to that and it will take them two or three years but they will learn that yeah so you do get a lot of like 19 year olds that are kind of like their mom's done everything for them they're little snot-nosed brats and they turn into these amazing adults it's this huge transformation it's kind of one of my more favorite things of the job 
I always used Dustin, like who was a, a really crummy 19 year old little kid who wanted to quit immediately, he wanted to go home. Uh, where did I find him? Smoking bongs in his mom's basement. And he was brought out by his brother and the whole job was terrifying to him. He never worked that hard. He never really had any ambition and all that kind of stuff. And then it took him three years, but he became one of the fastest planters in the company. Like, how do you go from just being terrible to being one of the fastest planters in the company? Did you work out a bunch? No, like he didn't do any of that stuff. There was some kind of light bulb that went off in his brain that told him that he can do this, that he is capable of working this hard. I think seeing other humans work that hard is part of it. Yeah. Um, and some people come out with that aspect of it as well. So hard work is kind of a, a common thread of the successful planters yeah. over the years. Yeah. I also yeah. find people that um, are not lost in their head or observant of their surroundings. Mm. Uh, like how, how to describe that or how you identify that in people. But there's... I said to Mick last night, I was like, there's some people, I see Mick, he's hammering nails, and I see he's got three nails left, and the bag is five feet away. Before he asks for it, I walk over, I get the nails, and I hand him the nails. Mm -hmm. He says, thank you. And some other people are just thinking, do-do-do-do-do, do-do-do-do-do, and they don't pay attention to anything unless they're involved in it. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of observing your surroundings and looking and learning and listening mm -hmm. to like everything that you can take in. I think there's some people that naturally absorb everything around them and try to use that to your advantage. And there's some people that think, unless someone says my name and speaks directly to me, then it's probably not important. Yeah. And then they're a daydreamer or whatever it is, you know, it's maybe not such a bad thing all the time, but it's not a great thing. To treat yeah. Seriously. So, yeah. Um, and then thinking kind of from the other side of it, what are the things that you find commonly break people out here? Um, and I don't know about break is the right word, but the people who quit or I don't know I guess quits really the biggest thing yeah the people who quit I think often are like they just haven't faced much adversity or they really don't enjoy being bad at stuff mm. there, there's there's that double-sided like if you don't like being bad at stuff you're either incredibly driven to become really good at things or you get embarrassed by being bad at things then you start to make excuses for reasons you're failing and then you will come up with an excuse as why well, you need to quit like yeah. the the vast majority of people who quit will literally sneak off in the night. Like, I'd say it's 50-50. Some people are like, I hate this job. It sucks. I'm like, fair enough. It does suck. Yeah. And you have to savor how bad it is to realize how badass you are for doing it. Yeah. Uh, and then there's some people that are just like, yeah, I, it sucks. I leave. And then there's like 50% of the other people will be like, my dog died. I got to go home. My grandma died. Your, your grandma died like four times last week when you took days <laughs> off as well. And oh, mom injured. I need to make a phone call on the day off and then people just disappear in their car and stuff like that. They will make excuses and they just, they want an easy, uh, they want an easy job. They mm -hmm. want to work at Walmart and just collect a paycheck and stuff. And they're happy just to pass the hours of the day. Uh, and those type of people will never survive. Yeah. Sometimes those people can stick it out and be terrible rookies and you know, they, they progress over the years. Yeah. Um, they get that light bulb moment for yeah. whatever reason. But yeah. I would say more than anything, you could never physically look at anyone and guess. Mm. You can see like the most, the biggest, largest muscular athletic man mm -hmm. and will get absolutely decimated by a tiny female that is like, you're like, well, of course he should, it's a physical job. This man should be better. And it's just not the fucking case. You can never judge a book by its cover tree planning. Yeah. It is obviously beneficial if you're athletic and you have fitness and all that stuff, mm -hmm. but is not the end all to be all. It is far more mental to see in the end if you will really, really succeed. I yeah. think it's those people who are focused 
that are okay with being bad at first and just are slowly okay with like slowly progressing through minor steps yeah um, and kind of just continuing to approach the do- job on a daily basis and want to achieve tiny steps yeah because that's Plant like slowly trees. yeah exactly because yeah. that will slowly turn you into a good tree planner some yeah. people will naturally just run out of the gates because they're they are superior athletes or just incredibly mentally motivated mm-hmm. um, and that will happen but the vast majority of people are very average at this job when they start yeah. and they will get slightly better than average some of them will become very good and some people take two to three years to get good some people take two to three weeks so yeah. it is a very mixed bag but mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people that are, I don't want to call them spoiled and I'm old and I sound bitter already. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's some people that just haven't faced adversity in yeah. life and this is a massive punch in the face for those kids and they mm-hmm. can't handle it a lot and stuff. Yeah. I think it's I think it's good for people to fail at shit too. Like it's yeah. good to come out here and suck and have people just run laps around you. And or maybe when you come out and fail and quit and then realize that, oh my God, I couldn't do that. I just gave up. Um, even that is probably a valuable lesson for a lot of people who come out and then mm-hmm. leave. Good for the ego, just to yeah, kind of yeah. remind you that you're human. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it is a hard-ass job, and the people who succeed, like, make it through the season. If they're not great, it doesn't matter. Yeah, uh, it's still a huge accomplishment, and I hope people find satisfaction in even just doing it for a year, if that's all they end up doing. So surviving a season. Yeah. 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 Coming back to those barriers or attributes of positive planters, would you say that's pretty universal across the industry? Like, yeah, the job's I, the same regardless of what company you're at, really. Yeah, uh, yes, very much so. It is the same job across, like, the whole industry. Like, you go down yeah. the coast in the southern interior, it's the same job. It's just slightly more technical. Mm-hmm. Like, you just have to have more experience and understand more things. I'd say up north, there's a little more aspect of just hard manual labor like you just have to go fast and work really hard yeah down there you can work you're still really hard work but you can it's a little more mental mm-hmm. I think yeah. okay and then in the theme of people and culture um and I mean maybe I'm I'm a little bit biased because I've been part of Phil's camp for my whole time but Phil's camp is known as the camp and that you know when Phil Duff came he's like yeah the better people are at this camp <laughs> Okay, Phil's camp is where it's at. What would you say are things, like, why is that the case? And how do you feel like you've helped set that precedent? Um, I don't want to toot my horn anywhere in the process here, but I think a huge part of succeeding at this job is a positive outlook on this job. Mm -hmm. Um, You could wake up every single morning and be sour and bitter and set yourself up to fail. And or you can take joy in, like, your little accomplishments in laughing at the hilariously terrible shit you have to do and the impossible missions you're sent on and the bad things that happen because mm-hmm. um, when you reflect on them they are all enjoyable in some way and they become funny stories and if you can succeed in the moment of doing that that makes you good at this job mm-hmm. those are the people that I look to promote the people that are positive more often that treat people really nice um, I, as a foreman, I think I was a good time. I was very appreciative of my planters. I have a temper or, and like, you know, I could be a yelly, angry foreman and stuff like that, but I had a really good time. We had dance parties at the reefer. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I attracted a really good group of people. And even as I became a supervisor, I promoted those people, those Mm -hmm. really good, positive people that were a good time to be around. They were just friendly to everyone. They were good planters, they were nice people, mm-hmm. and they, I think that's just set a precedent of a continuous stream of like, the good people I promoted originally that were positive and had a nice time have attracted other good people. Yeah. 
and that's just been a cycle that's been ongoing for years. And I could say three years ago, we had a massive amount of rookies. It would have been the year before you started in yeah. Williams Lake. And there was a huge amount of fallout. And that year I was like, I, I this camp does not have the same vibe. There's too many rookies hired. And the positive people that I have here are not managing to overpower or turn the boat to a really joyous kind of mm. adventurous spirit and stuff. Yeah. This year, I would say, is an, a really good example of, like, there's been so many things, like COVID and rain and bugs. Like, it's been a really rough season. But I started to reflect on it the other day and just be like, wow, you guys are awesome. Mm. No one really complains. Everyone just puts their head down and goes to work every day. Yeah. And they all really enjoy each other's company and stuff. And that's a huge aspect of it. Obviously, I don't know what goes on in other camps. And I think there's... There is a, a myth that my camp is good times, but I do really enjoy the managers that uh, I have under me. I have a huge part in promoting them and knowing where they will take their employees in terms of like attitude and spirit and stuff like that. And totally. I think that's maybe my hand in like making my camp a well-known good times kind of camp yeah, and stuff. So definitely, yeah. So you've obviously developed, I would say, great competency as a leader over your time. Is there a time that you've surprised yourself with this skill set and leadership that you've developed? I would say it's kind of shocking to realize how much influence you can have over a group of people. Yeah. Um, I don't do it so much as more, like maybe I'm slightly more embarrassed or I don't feel as relatable to younger folk or whatever, but like I remember seasons pass and I would stand up and I would give fiery speeches and I would see direct results in people's efforts the following day. Mm. I always... I always reference it to people. It was a controversial speech, but I call it my balls deep speech. And it was, um, <laughs> and I used uh, the male genitalia as a metaphor or whatever. And I, I said, the penis was like your production and the balls were your effort. <laughs> and all, it doesn't matter how big your production is. I just need you to give all your effort. So you needed to go balls deep. Um, and then I started calling out people from the crowd and being like, what are you going to do on Monday? And girls were like, I'm going balls deep. And the cook was like, I'm going balls deep in the mashed potatoes. And it was a hilarious moment, but I also called on everyone that no matter how good or bad they were, I needed their maximum amount of effort because you don't have to be the company highballer to be recognized or appreciated the worst rookie out there's efforts are appreciated and they're important to the end success of everyone yeah and when you get in that mentality where everyone's putting in the maximum amount of effort every person feels good about themselves mm -hmm. and that creates a really beautiful atmosphere and stuff and, and i think there's certain moments where like myself either calling out my managers to turn the tide or myself just giving a camp speech can really turn the tide and set the mood that's cool too to think that you give a speech on a Sunday and then you're processing the numbers Monday night, Wednesday night, whatever, mm -hmm. and you see the result. Yeah, and the reason I referenced my balls deep speech because it was like a very call to arms to like get this done and I was like, we're gonna get days off, we were gonna get more days off, we could hit this certain production number and, and everyone went absolutely apeshit. But not only then, it actually just carried on the entire rest of the season. For like a solid month after, we just had unbelievably solid, great production. There was mm. a moment of hesitation and it was just joyous. Every night off was great. Every day at work was great. Yeah. And, uh, and even at the end of the year, I was just like, this is possible. My best season ever as a supervisor. Just because, like, not because I personally did this fantastic job, but mm -hmm. my camp as a whole was really successful and had a really good time. Yeah. Um, even if they made a ton of money and were pissed off, I wouldn't consider it a great success. I want people to have a good time and want to come back and do the job again. It's the energy. Um, kind yeah, of. exactly. Yeah. The vibe of your camp. Yeah. Because... 
everyone is happy when they make lots of money. It's how people respond to when things are hard that's important. Yeah. So. It tells more of like a judgment of character. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, coming into the lightning questions because I've taken up so much of your time already, which thank you. Really that's appreciate. Cool. Yeah. Your favorite tree to plant. My favorite tree to plant? Yeah. When pine you do trees, of course. Pine. Yeah. Your favorite tree in general? Uh, an arbutus tree. Yeah. They are beautiful. They're, they're pretty much just on the island, hey? Island, a bit of the, the Gulf the Islands, and then a little bit on the west coast there. Yeah. But yeah, apparently, like, the last ice age, they would have, like, killed them all, except for the small pike pocket of, like, southern east Vancouver Island and yeah. the mainland that didn't freeze over. Can you distinctly remember your favorite block? I remember exactly what the block looks like and have a vague idea of where it is, but that would be my, like, PB one, I guess. Yeah. I just had a great day. I just rubbed Lakota, which is a muscle, uh, you know, uh, burning thing. Yeah. I would rub a coat on my back, every single bag up, and then we would smoke bowls. And we just <laughs> flew like the wind and planted 4,600 trees. And it was a, just a fabulous day. Your favorite meal at camp? I would say my favorite meal was in my first season in Ospica. We spent, like, we're super far in the woods and there was steak night. But the guy would, like, you take your name and tell him how you want your steak done. And then he would go to a barbecue on the patio and cook it for you. But while you waited for your steak to get cooked, it was also chicken fingers and french fries night. So you'd be like, dummy chicken fingers and french fries. And then the steak would arrive. And then there was always cheesecake and ice cream. So it was just glorious all around. Wow. Yeah. Double dinners, double desserts. Yeah. Getting her, getting her going. We got to get the ice cream machine. Here. Oh, I know. Phil's camp will reach the next so, level. <laughs> yeah. A favorite camp. A favorite camp spot? Yep. Probably the, the most beautiful place I've ever had my tent was in Lovell Cove, which is outside of Fort St. James, really down, like far down along camp. Tree planting was terrible, it was awful, but my tent was on a sandy beach, feet from the lake, and just a big old mountain backdrop or whatever. And it was a very small camp, there was only like 24 of us out there, so it was like a really cool kind of a little adventure, yeah. and we were just tucked in the woods there and stuff. Um, and obviously Dream Camp is, you know, she's all right. Your most important camp comfort? I like a nice bottom. <laughs> Yeah. I'm really into my coffee these days. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. The best planting boots? Uh, I personally planted in cork boots. The best hiking boot ever made were A-Solos. Mm. Uh, so comfortable, lasted a really long time, reasonably priced. And then they stopped carrying them in North America. But I always planted in cork boots, big rubber gum boots with so, like spikes on the bottom. And I thought they were the best. Yeah. Your pump-up song rolling onto the block. Are you ready to go? <laughs> Uh, I'm a big fan of disco. Disco? <laughs> Anything like, disco. Ava, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Casey, and the Sunshine <laughs> Band. Yeah. 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 Okay. I love it. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on episode one of The Detour. If you enjoyed it, tell a friend or two. And if you want to learn more, you can check out more about the podcast at www.saratap.com. See you next week for episode two. Do you